Hello, good evening and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we hear all about the Golden Globe race, the solo round the world race and the Irish entrant Pat Lawless. On Sunday, Pat Lawless will set sail from France in an effort to become the first Irish person to sail a solo non-stop around the world. He'll take off from Sabdelon with 15 other entrants in the Golden Globe race. That's a recreation of the famous 1968 race where Robert Knox Johnson was the only entrant to finish. The Golden Globe is run along the same lines as that very first race meaning the boats are of an older design, there are no electronics on board apart from a radio, and navigation is by celestial observation. You use the stars as your map. It will take each entrant between 7 and 10 months to make the trip, and it's fraught with danger. Don McIntyre is the race director. I spoke to him today, and he told me about the entrance. Uh, well, at the moment, we've got 16 entrants that are uh, uh, in the race, but there may be a couple that uh, still don't make the start. It'll be determined today. They're uh, lacking some of their safety equipment, uh, and they have until 2 o'clock this afternoon to get their green card. If they don't get that, uh, the next chance they have is at 10 o'clock on Monday morning, so they will not be able to start. So until uh, this afternoon, we don't know how many are going to actually cross the start line. They have one week after the official start to actually cross the start line and take off. Because you've got very strict safety rules first and then uh, rules for the skills of the people, the skippers taking part. Yeah, that's right. It's a very serious challenge and we do everything we can to mitigate the risk. You know, there is always risk there and that's the attraction for the entrance as well. They, uh, you know, any adventure has risk, but uh, certainly uh, our standards are amongst the highest in the world. It is pretty tough, but it's been well publicised for four years, so the entrants know what's going on, and, and all of them are under pressure. You know, there's time and money issues and all that sort of stuff. It's a real struggle to make the start, but certainly as organisers, we are comfortable that once they've achieved everything and they get their green card, they're ready to go. They're all amateurs, more or less. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, they're all volunteers to this incredible adventure around the world and, and they know what's at stake as well. And so uh, it's an interesting uh, group of, uh, uh, you know, unique individuals. They're, every one of them is, is doing it for different reasons and uh, uh, some of them don't even know why they're doing it. You know, they just know they're absorbed and drawn into it like a magnet, you know, and, and it's a huge commitment for them to get there, as you know, with Pat. You know, I mean, it's a... It's, it's a life-changing experience and it'll be life-defining when it's all over. The Irish entrant, Pat Lawless, he had an issue last weekend. You made him do um, a, a, an extra journey, 300 miles. Why did, why did you do that? Well, a lot of people wouldn't understand because they don't know the technical details of the notice of race, but it's very important that we can show and prove that all entrants are able to navigate with a sextant. So when uh, we have two qualifications uh, uh, there, when uh, the entrant uh, has their boat for the GTR, they have to do 2,000 miles. Needs to be sailed using a wind vane only, and they have to use a sextant. Okay, at the same time, during that 2,000 miles, they can use a GPS, uh, but they have to log all of their celestial calculations. Uh, there's quite a bit of paperwork involved, and then at the end of the voyage, they can send that to us or give it to us at any time. Uh, most of them give it to us once they get together at the prologue because there's a lot of books and charts and bits and pieces and the entrance are to put that in. Unfortunately, 
Pat misplaced all of his calculations. We had no evidence whatsoever that he was able to navigate by celestial observation. And uh, we then uh, quizzed him on a few issues uh, and we didn't have confidence that that was the case. Also, we then asked if he had any other uh, celestial observations from any voyage at any time in his sailing career and he couldn't produce those documents either. So we had no other option. And it's also a serious uh, breach of the notice of race, clearly defined, and uh, it could have been a fine of up to 10000 uh, euro. Uh, we assessed that, dropped it substantially, and, uh, you know, fines are a funny thing, but all entrants sign a declaration when they enter the race that they're aware of the fines and that they are, are prepared to pay fines and also acknowledge that there is no reason to be fined whatsoever. So it was very unfortunate. We hated doing the fine bit, but we have to be very careful. We don't press, uh, you know, create precedents for the future of the race in the 2026 edition and so on going forward. Pat did what we requested. He passed that test and is, uh, I, I'm not sure, I think he now has his green card. If not, it'll be uh, imminently given to him. He wasn't the only one who had to do something like that. Yeah, exactly. We had another American entrant who uh, was in the same position. He just sailed a 4,000-mile voyage across the Atlantic and uh, he uh, could produce no uh, uh, data whatsoever and suggested that there was not a lot of sun available to make sites and so on. So he had to do the same thing. And again, uh, he was able to uh, achieve the result re- required in that 300-mile voyage. Typically, what are the yachts entering in this? They're not custom-built. Most of them are old boats. Yeah, we, we have a requirement. They must be designed before uh, 2000, uh, 1988, and they're a particular type, uh, 32 to 36 feet long, minimum displacement, 6,200 tonne, with a long keel and a rudder on the trailing edge of the keel. So they're very old-fashioned? So Yeah, they're- yeah, they definitely go back to another era, but they're very safe, solid, ocean-going, voyaging yachts. You know, they're, they're not lightweight flyers where the keel's likely to drop off and... Uh, we've done that on purpose for a couple of reasons. It's also similar boats to Robin Ops Johnson's Suhaley, which won the original uh, race in 1969 when it was completed. The last race, how many? we had an Irish entrant then, Gregor McGocky, and he actually got shipwrecked in the Southern Ocean or in the Indian Ocean. How many people completed the race last time? We had 18 starters and only five finished, so it was a very... Uh, uh, very dramatic. Uh, in the first edition in 1968, there were nine starters and only one finished. We've got 16 now here, and I would hope and expect to see around about, well, even as many as 10 finish, but it's impossible to say. There's a lot involved, and you know, it's all about planning, preparation, and execution, but then you still need a bit of luck. And uh, we're starting the event two months later than previous edition in 2018, and hopefully we'll get a bit better weather in the Southern Ocean. But it's an adventure, and every adventure has an unknown outcome. And it's the unexpected storm that uh, is most dangerous for people. There's storms and storms. Big winds and huge seas isn't necessarily dangerous if it's all blowing from the same direction for a long time. You know, you can have 20-metre, 25-metre seas. Uh, that sounds dramatic, but it can be like hills and valleys. It's when they start breaking that's dangerous. So uh, it's a complex matrix to determine what's a dangerous storm and what's not. Uh, but yes, it, it, it's, uh, the Southern Ocean is a unique place and there's serious challenges down there. You have rules about how far south people can go to keep away from the ice? We, we work with the rescue coordination centres around the world and, and in discussions with them, they prefer that we don't let the entrance go too far south. 
uh, and uh, yeah, that's part of the course now. So we monitor all that. We also monitor the weather very closely. If the winds are expected over 35, 40 knots, we give detailed individual weather reports to the entrance and even suggest uh, particular routing, like what direction they could or should go to minimise the impact of a storm. Uh, the final decision after receiving that information is up to the skipper. He doesn't have to follow that advice. It's just information and, and the entrant does exactly what they think is best. It's 30,000 miles. How long is it going to take people? Well, that's, uh, that's up for interpretation as well because uh, they could, you know, we could see a boat finish as early as and, uh, sorry, 215 days or they could take 315 days. There's so many factors that will influence the speed that they get around the world. You know, it's, it's an epic journey. It, it goes for a long time. It's unique in, in any sport anywhere in the world. You know, over that period of time, it's, uh, it's quite unique. If people want to follow it online, where do we go? Well, if you, it starts with uh, goldenglobrace.com. Uh, if they get on there, you can follow all the various uh, links to social media. You don't even have to be on Facebook or Instagram because those feeds are actually available on, on the website. And tracking is the big one. You know, you can link to the tracking in the live section of the website, and that's updated every four hours, so you can get it from there. If you want it on your mobile, you can download the, the Yellow Brick app and then look for Golden Globe Race. So you're updated every four hours all the way around the world for the next uh, you know, eight or nine months, however long it takes. Facebook's our primary tool, but you can see it uh, uh, on the website without being a member of Facebook. Race Director Don McIntyre. So Pat Lawless now has that green card and he's clear to Pasco. I caught up with him earlier and he told me about his last minute preparations. Oh, I had to go over to Customs and Immigration and hand in my passport and ship's papers and stuff just to sort of first officially signed out. And then I went back to the office and they were waiting on photos to upload and they were uploaded so I got my green card. What does your green card, what does it allow you to do? Take part in the race? But it's been a long yeah, road to get yeah, there. Well, it has. The green card is tiny. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, you, you wouldn't be allowed to start the race without it. And there's a lot of safety rules involved in, the, in, in it. And they're necessary, even though they're a nuisance. They are important. And so I'm good to go. And that's, yeah, a stressful a few weeks. Just... You, you feel responsible because you've had such good support that if you didn't make the start, like less than 50% have made the start has entered and paid their entry fee. But because you've had support, it's a stressful time because if you didn't make the start, you feel you let everyone down. And I know people wouldn't judge, but just the way you feel. Yeah, so I'm delighted now to have the green card and you set to go. For our listeners, I'm going to ask you some questions about the boat. Uh, tell me about about it. Green Rebel is a Saltram Saga 36. It is... I picked the boat. I, I had a lot of sleepless nights wondering what boat I'd pick, and I picked the boat for safety. It has a small cockpit, small portholes, and it's quite a safe boat. It's two tons heavier than most of the other boats in the race, the rustlers and that. And it's a shorter mast. It's the shortest mast of all the 36-foot boats. So it's, it's a boat that I think is safe and that's why I picked it. And I had lots of other choices at the time and I, I, this was more expensive than a lot of the boats I could have bought, but I'm delighted with the boat and actually turns out to be reasonably fast. I'd say the rustlers will be faster in the light airs and upwind in certain conditions, but other than that, I think it's a downwind race. We'll have strong headwinds for the start, which is 
good. I wanted strong winds, but not headwinds. But, but yeah, but the boat is uh, the boat. Uh, the Green Rebel is a Saltron Saga 36, and it's in really good condition and ready for the Southern Ocean, I believe. It's it's a bit unusual when I saw the look at the photographs. It's pointed at both ends. It's a double ender, yeah, um, which means that if I have big following seas, and the, the waves won't lift the transom, uh, the waves won't lift the boat like they would where the boat was a transom. Um, I also believe that I have a soft dodger, not a hard dodger. None of the boats with the hard dodgers finished last time. A lot of wind pollution in one of those up in the back of the boat. And what do you mean by the dodger? It's at the back of the boat. The, the spray dodger that you you can either fold up or fold down. You know the spray hood? Okay, it's like a hood, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So mine is, it, it folds up and down. And some of them put fiberglass hard dodgers on instead. So they can't fold them down. So they, they like have a storm jib in the back of their boat. Like if you fold down your dodger and tie everything down and tie your boom onto your light lines in, in storms, which I have done before, it's, it's a good safe boat and the double ender helps. It's a safer boat. When the waves hit from behind, it will be more inclined to run around the boat than, than lift the stern. When the wind is behind you, I know from experience, and it can push the boat, the back of the boat, to left or right, and you're struggling to get it back on track, and it is very difficult and exhausting. Well, the area self-steering I have is unbelievable. It's way more powerful than the hydrovent. But of course, it has ropes. The hydrovent is simpler, but the hydrovent will be more inclined to, the rudder will be more inclined to cavitate and let the boat broach. But this boat, I had been out in 60 knots and as straight as an arrow, the rudder is very far aft and which gives you good leverage. So, so far, but I haven't been in the Southern Ocean and so that would be a difference. Now, you spoke then as well about a short mast. The biggest problem that people have had in the last couple of races is demasting, getting knocked down and losing the mast. It is the elephant in the room, yeah. I have put a lot of work into my mast. I have put a sleeve up inside it and taken out the T-balls which is just a way of holding the stays onto the mast and put in tangs, which is compression bolts, true. And, yeah, like, if you get a bad pitch pole, I suppose, it'd be very hard for a mast to stay there. But if you get a violent pitch pole, um, which means you go head over heel, and if you get a knockdown, the mast should survive. If you get a 360 roll, I believe it will survive. I have done a lot. But it, it's the one, you need to mind your mast. It's, it's the, the obvious one, so... And you, you Fingers crossed, touch wood, it'll stay up all the way around. Yeah. It, it's uh, been the downfall of, and most people who drop out, that's their issue. You have a ladder to get up, you've built a ladder into the mast as well to get up to the top if needs be. I have a fantastic, yeah, it's a ladder that goes in to the track for the main sheet and I only got it yesterday, the day before and it's really fantastic and because I'm up and down it, I was doing work on it and I have to go to the top today, it's my last job. My spinnaker halyard is slightly rubbing off the furler and I want to try and move. I put a new block off to the side on the crane and that's my last job. But you can just hop up the, the mast with a, a light line and the harness are right like that. Um, yeah, so it's good. It's, I'm delighted with the ladder. So the, the ladder, you, you put it into the track that the sail goes up and you hold it up? Yep, as you haul it up, you just slap, slap it into the track that the main sail would go up in and... Yeah, haul it up and tie it tight down then so it's, it's firm. It's part of the, the mast. It's quite firm and quite good. Yeah. How many sails will you be using in most times? Max, we're allowed 10 sails. So of the 10 sails, four spinnakers, two symmetrical and two asymmetrical. I have a mainsail. I have a staysail. I have a solent, 
Yankee, and I have a 140% Genoa. I have uh, an extra... I, I take down the Genoa before Storms and put up a smaller working Yankee, and uh, I have a Storm chip. That's it. Big Rolly Tasker sales, all new Rolly Tasker sales, sponsored by the FLA Group. And they will last you the whole way around? You hope? They will. Okay. The oh, main yeah. I'd be pretty sure, yeah. Okay, the main side will go up when you start the race and it stays up there for the seven, eight, nine months it's going to take you to finish. Well, it'll be up and down reefed, yeah, and down in storms. My boat sails very well, uh, even on a reach with just the two jibs up, with the, the stay sail and the, whichever jib, the solid jibber, as you know. But it, it would be the, the solid Yankee in, in heavy winds, but it sails really well in... 50, 60 knots without the mainsail. It, it's well balanced with just two jibs up. So I would tie my in, once I get over 55, 60 knots, I would tie my mainsail onto the lifeline, tie down the, the spray hood, tie down the main, and get all the wind pollution clear. You know, anything that would be kind of causing a problem, just clear on the deck so the wind can run over. Now, you're going off on Sunday. Is all your food on board? Nearly 99%. I have to go and get a few more. We've been living on the boat. Myself and my wife and my family are on board. Well, myself and my wife are on board. She's keep on around now. <laughs> what they call it, so my son and daughter are visiting, so we have been digging into uh, just tins of, uh, cans of soft drinks and other stuff, cans of pate and stuff like that. So I, I will, I go to the supermarket today. Uh, my wife and another friend will actually um do a shop. Not a major shop. And I want to get some fresh vegetables and potatoes. What kind of food are you bringing mostly? Is it in tins? Is it dried food? Mostly tins. We're not allowed water makers in the race, so there's no advantage in bringing the freeze-dried food. I would have about 30 freeze-dried dinners on board. So if I got delayed and it was coming up and was running low on my canned food, I would have them as backup. But they're, they're fine in protein, but they're not as tasty as... You're not uh, allowed a water maker, which means you have to carry all your water with you. How much water are you bringing? I'm bringing 420 litres, and I will harvest rainwater then as, as well. Uh, if you drink two litres a day, that would be 200 days. So a lot of people are bringing a lot less water. But as the year has gone on, I have kind of drifted from... And when I entered first, I just wanted to win, but now I want to finish. We have... Unfinished business in this race, Ireland. Um, because of Gregor, Gregor the last time? Yeah. Well, the first race had Commander Bill King in Galway Blazer. The second race has had um, Gregor. And yeah, so this is the third one, and I need to finish. So that's my plan. Okay. No, finish as fast as I can. Yeah, but I have I have erred in the side of caution. And as time went on, I have, like, I have brought hatches to cover my main hatches, which would be seven kilos each so there's two of those in case i break a main hatch there's two main hatches one over the saloon and one over in the bow and i can just i have a an epoxy deck epoxy plywood deck so i can just screw them down and i have other stuff like that that you're carrying extra weight but it's about trying to get to the finish is there any way you can supplement those 200 liters of water you're bringing uh, to, to i'd be bringing 420 liters of water and then I will have um, long life milk. I will have cans of soft drinks and fruit juice, like apple juice, orange juice in containers. That's uh, 
I will be up around 500 litres altogether of liquid. You're setting out on Sunday. Very few people have managed to do this, uh, go solo sail around the world non-stop. Yeah, how many will finish? I believe Tommy, who got shipwrecked in the last race with Gregor, he reckons five out of the 16 that will start. I think 16 will start. And I reckon 10. <laughs> yeah, just over with them, I can turn the office and Jane and Lutz and all of them, Nora and that, and got my green card. Yeah, Don, yeah, Don reckons right. 10 will finish. Does he? Yeah, yeah. Well, if, I, I reckon 10 myself, yeah. If you do he, make... He, we, we discussed that this morning and he said he's been optimistic. But I don't think so. I think the boats are well prepared. Any time we'll answer that one. Okay, you're also setting out a little bit later than the last race, so hopefully the weather will be a bit better for you when you get in extreme conditions in the Southern Ocean. Well, I don't know, yeah. Um, Susie and Jean-Luc both got met storms in the middle of the summer, late in the second half, like so. That's that's only to be seen, will that make much of a difference? And then we're getting to Cape Horn later, so, yeah, that'll be yeah, that'll be interesting to see but how that will work out. No Irish person has managed to sail solo non-stop around the world. No, the first person to sail around the world via the Cape was Conor O'Brien from Ireland, 1923. He did it in a boat called Searsha, which is a replica is now being nearly finished, being built in Cork. That's right. Yeah, I went down to see it. A fantastic boat, yeah. You have a big crew of supporters over with you for Sunday. The best of luck with everything, and we'll Thanks. be following you with great interest. Thanks very much, Fergus. Thanks to all the people in Ireland. And the best of luck to Pat. Gregor McGuckin, Pat is off on Sunday. You did this race four years ago. What advice do you have for him? Um, I mean, it's a long race. Um, it can take out sort of anywhere between seven to, well, seven is probably optimistic, but eight to ten months. Um, I suppose there's, there's, if I was to give him three bits of advice, the first would be to kind of, if you, as you got, same with any big, big, big project, break it down into the smaller, smaller bits. So what, what I did, which I found very helpful, was sort of set myself targets. Um, so I wanted to be in it a certain place at a certain date or a certain latitude at a certain date. Uh, and that that meant, you know, it kind of forced me to make sure my boat speed was kept up. And then in days where there's no wind, um, it kind of forced me to push those couple of days after that to make sure that I would sort of meet those targets. And it, you're kind of racing against yourself a certain bit then as well. Um, and, you know, you're kind of limited to, as to we were only able to find out where the other competitors were if they told you so that you didn't know if they were telling you the truth or not because we would talk by radio each day um, so that kind of you, you kind of forced yourself to race against yourself a bit then as well the, the another thing would be to write a lot I mean eight months is a long time um, and it's very easy to forget what you know what happened in your experiences um, each day and each week during during the race and looking back at it when I went I didn't I thought I was writing plenty at the time but retrospectively I didn't write nearly enough and there's sort of things I didn't make note of and the things that I sort of forgot along the way and sometimes they come back to you but I'm sure there's a lot that hasn't so um, and it is kind of it's a once in a lifetime experience uh, so it's certainly it's certainly worth documenting it as much as possible he is very well prepared and you've spoken to him and you, you visited is, the yeah. boat I, I did yes yep 
Um, he's a very good boat. It's very well. It's very well prepared, as far as I could see. Um, I think it has the potential to do quite well. And um, there's been course changes, or ever so slight course changes, since the first edition of the race, which I think will actually benefit his boat even further. So I think I would hope he would do quite well. What's going through his head? Do you think now with the with forty eight hours to go? <laughs> uh, stress, I would say. <laughs> Um, he's over in France at the sort of two-week build-up at the start of the race, and he's trying to get everything, the last-minute things, prepared. And you know, when you leave to go to France, you don't think there's a whole lot, but as the day gets closer and closer, there's more and more. There's a lot of people around um, wanting to chat and take photos, and there's a lot of events going on, and it's all it's all very surreal and sort of an out-of-body bo- out experience, and especially the you know the last 48 hours and it, it can be very very overwhelming with the amount that needs to be done and then of course when you leave all of a sudden you're completely on your own so it's a it's a very surreal experience and i would imagine he will be absolutely exhausted by the time he leaves <laughs> and thanks to gregor mcgoggin best of luck to pat lawless And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.